Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6. Um, we are going to look at one verse. We were originally going to look at four verses. Back down to one verse. And you know what that means. Those of you who've been here, we've been here six and a half years, so you've been here long enough, you should know. The longer the passage, the shorter the sermon. The shorter the passage, the longer the sermon. So be thankful I'll cut out the other verses, all right? So you'll find it on page 279 of your pew Bibles. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. We'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouth, that we would be transformed by the gospel. Apply it to our lives. And Lord, if, if, if we will look at this text and be honest about what it says about me, um, I think we can be greatly convicted. And not just convicted, but turned to a Savior. So would you be so kind? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. See you. In both college football and college basketball, there is a certain play that becomes iconic. And, it, and, and the sport itself is associated with that play. In basketball, of course, we know what that iconic play is. Was it 1992 when a Christian, I mean a man named Christian, received the ball and he turned around and shot it? And it was the shot heard around the world. Have you all, have you all aware of this game? It was a little a club called the Duke of, of, of University against the Lexington Basketball Academy. You all familiar with that, right? I, I'm, if not, come March, you'll see it about 10,000 more times to my own enjoyment. Football has their own play. In fact, it's called the play. It took place on November 30th, 1982. Uh, the teams were the California Golden Bears and the Stanford Cardinals. They're playing against each other. It's the very end of the game. Stanford is, is up by a few points, and it is the closing seconds. They just scored, and so it is a kickoff to, to, to the Golden Bears, and all Stanford has to do is to tackle one guy. After all, there's 11 of you kicking the ball. All you have to do is find the guy with the ball and to tackle him. Many of you may know the play of which I am describing. Guy receives the ball. And he, he runs into the defense. He laterals the ball who runs into the defense. He laterals the ball and this guy runs into a defense. Five laterals later, a lane opens up to the end zone and he starts running. But do you remember who he met along the way? Not the, not the defense, but the marching bands. What makes the play the play is actually the guy calling the play. Because he's saying, he laterals to this, he's going up the field, he's at the 30, the band is run on the field. You remember what, what he does is, is he gets so excited he jumps into the end zone, he knocks down a flute player, which I think is the most hilarious part of the whole thing. <laughs> if it were the tuba player, that would be even better. But the flute will work just fine in my estimation. Now, why was the band on the field? 
Because they had reached the point of celebration. They had reached the goal, the peak. We beat the golden bears, our rivalry. And in the midst of that celebration, premature as it might have been, came the agony of defeat. So they swung from the high to the low. And what we get in verse 16 and what what we'll look at, say, for next week, verses 20 through 23, is what we have is the taste of what David is is going to experience the same thing. The high of leadership. The high of his administration, the high of, of, his, of his career. He is marched with the army, with the priests, with the prophets. The, the presence of God is returned to the people of God only to return home and to find the emotional low of conflict. So what we were going to see in verse 16 is the introduction then of what we will see, Lord willing, next week, verses 20 to 23. But, but, but to introduce us, let us just see that this is really the beginning of an unfolding of David's wreck of a domestic life. He really is a, a bifurcated character. On the one hand, he's a great leader, great king, great administrator. Everything he touches turns the gold, right? But when he comes home, it seems as if everything he touches turns to ash. And this scene, verse 16, and again, we'll go down to verse 20, is as we see that falling apart for him, it really is beginning here. Let me see if I could summarize the success of David's uh, 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 career and his troubled family. Uh, we meet him, as you may recall, we, we started last year, 1 Samuel 16. He is anointed king by Samuel. Remember, he's out there uh, watching the sheep. A few verses later, he, he performs his, his musical talents for King Saul and finds favor in his eyes. By chapter 17, he kills the giant, Goliath, and then marries, as we'll see, Michal. In chapter 18, he defeats the Philistine army for Saul. And, and, and in, in 2 Samuel 5, we saw a few weeks ago, he becomes king over all of Israel, making Jerusalem its capital. Remember, he had to, he had to get rid of those who are occupying Jerusalem. So he has chosen a capital city. And here in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to, to Israel. Now, as the story unfolds, he'll, he'll defeat more of the Philistines, more of the Ammonites, and all these other ites. He'll, he'll keep expanding the borders of his kingdom. But when David is leading as king, he he finds nothing but success. But when he leads as husband and father, he finds nothing but failure. In 2 Samuel 11, is the act of adultery with Bathsheba that leads to the murder of her husband by his order. In 2 Samuel 12, the firstborn of David and Bathsheba dies as a result of his actions. In chapter 13, we see the uh, assault of Tamar, his daughter, by his son Ammon. In response, Absalom, his son, kills his half-brother Ammon and flees. David eventually allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem without any consequences for murder. Although he does say that you can come back to Jerusalem, it's just I don't want to see you ever again. By 2 Samuel 14, Absalom wants Joab, the general's attention, but was ignored. And so he burns his barley field And David responds by greeting his rebellious son with a kiss. In chapter 15 to 17, Absalom then goes to Hebron, that is David's first capital, and declares himself king over Israel. Rather than fight, David flees his own son, who is seeking to overthrow him. In chapter 16 of that narrative, Absalom enters Jerusalem 
crowns himself king publicly, publicly has relations with one of David's concubines, symbolizing that he is taking over his father's kingdom. In chapter 17 to chapter 19, David crushes Absalom's rebellion. Prior to the battle, David tells his generals, do not harm my son. And in the battle, you may recall the iconic scene where uh, uh, Absalom's long hair, this is why you hippies shouldn't have long hair, gets caught in the tree, you remember? And, and so Joab comes and slays Absalom. And David responds by lamenting the news of his son's death. Joab is incensed, and he says in chapter 19, verse 6, For you have made it clear today that commanders and officers are nothing to you. For I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. See, David had accomplished much as a king, but he failed miserably as a father and as a husband. So what we have here in verse 16 is the root of the conflict between he and McCall. See, where there is conflict, there is a root problem that is a heart problem. The problem is typically whenever there is conflict, what do we do? We fight over surfacey issues. Can you believe what he said to me? Can you believe what she has done to me? And when we deal with surfacey issues, it is like giving aspirin to a brain cancer patient. It may treat the symptoms, but it will not, it will not cure the cause. Now, a little bit of background between McCall and David. He won her in 1 Samuel 17 when he slayed Goliath. Remember, the, 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 the promise was no taxes. That's, that, that, I'll slay any giant for that. And you get uh, the king's daughter, right? And, and, and so he gets both, right? Doesn't have to pay taxes. And, and he gets the king's daughter. So now he's a married man. Shepherd boy becomes a married man to the king's daughter. He's, he's part of the household of, of the king. But you remember how he lost McCall? You remember that when David is fleeing from Saul, Saul takes his daughter, gives her to another man. A man um, uh, that we meet, his name is Palti, the son of Laish. And it was in 2 Samuel 3 when David returns to, to triumph as king of, of Israel. He first takes over Judah, of course, we saw that. You remember what he does? He finds McCall orders that she leave her husband that Saul had given her and return back to him. And the question we have there is why? Why did David go get his wife back? Well, it could be for love. I mean, that's a dreamy story, isn't it? Or is it for political connections? Being that she is the last of the household of Saul, her connection with David, marriage to David, would be a convenient and easy way to bring peace between his household and Saul's. But do you remember the last thing McCall did for David and to David before they were separated? Remember, David is running, and so he's, Saul throws the spear, and it zooms right by him. David's thinking, maybe I should go find myself another career, right? And so, so he packs his bags, and he leaves, and he comes home, right? And, and Saul's army's looking for him. And, and he says, McCall, will you just buy me some time? And he sneaks out the back door. You remember what McCall does? She buys him some time. She does do that. But when Saul discovers what she's doing, you remember what she does? She accuses her husband, David, of assault, which only fuels the rage of Saul. And now she is returned to David's home. And a lot has transitioned from that moment to now. David's gone from a refugee to a warrior chief to king. 
Michal has gone from the wife of David to the wife of Palti to the wife of David again. And again, did he really love her or did he just need her for her political connections? Meanwhile, her father and brothers have been slain and her father's primary rival is now king and her husband. Now, I am no professional counselor, but I am willing to bet these two people, long before they renew their vows, need to sit down and figure things out. Now, before we see the conflict, which is described in verse 20 to 23, that's the, that's the fruit of the conflict. The root of the conflict begins here. And how is it that we are introduced to McCall? As the ark of the Lord came to the city, right? And David is just happy. He is dancing like, 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 like Baptist before there was YouTube and TikTok, right? When, when no one else could, could prove that we were dancing. Man, he was going wild. And where's McCall? She's pictured as being in the upper room window looking down. Now, you've watched enough movies to know. Whoever is in that second floor window looking down at the camera is not a good person, right? Right? If, if it's a horror flick, right? That's the one that's haunting you in your dreams, right? If it's, a, if, if it's a crime mystery, that's the missing person. That's the murderer, whatever it might be. So if you're looking above in the mirror down... That is a great way to, to illustrate the coming conflict. So he's dancing. She is brooding. And now what is the real source of this conflict? Well, it's not because David is dancing, as bad of a dancer he might be. I don't know. It's not that David has moved the Ark of the Covenants. It's not that David is less dignified than her father, though he has proven himself to be that. It is because, the text tells us, she despised him in her, in her heart. You see it there in verse 16. In this narrative, the two never address this issue. It is brought up by the narrator and never by the characters. And we see by the end of the story, at the end of the chapter, what comes of that. And that is why the narrative ends with division and not reconciliation. In fact, that word despise is an interesting word. The last time it is used in the Bible, the previous time, so you have it here in chapter 6 of Second Samuel, the previous time it is used is 1 Samuel 17 in the narrative of David and Goliath. Verse 42 says, When the Philistine, Goliath, looked and saw David, he disdained him. The Hebrew word there for despise. He disdained him, for he was but a youth. You notice what the writer's doing there. Her attitude towards her husband mirrors the attitude of a pagan Philistine towards David. You see, this is not an attitude of God. It is amazing what heart sickness does to us. And it is more amazing how rarely we actually address it. You see, the root of your pain, what lies at the root of all division in your home, in your marriage, in the church, with loved ones, with strangers, with the other parents, is the heart. Its genesis is the heart. Jesus is right when he says in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you were to seek counsel, for example, regarding your marriage or something else, 
And when, when the counselor asks, share with me what the problem is. And your sentence begins with they. They snore really loud at night and won't go get it fixed. They show up to, 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 to dinner late and, and, and they care more about their job than they do me. They, if it begins with they, you're wrong. The problem lies in the hearts. So what I want to do with the time that remains is I want us to look at three root causes. We can look at others, but I think these are the big three root causes that lead to division and conflicts. And so when we enter a conflict, we need to ask ourselves, is the real root here one of these three? So rather than deal with these surfacey issues, let's deal with the heart issue. The first is idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of a false god in pursuit of a savior. Idols make promises that only God can fulfill. Thus, it functions by directing us away from our functional hells towards a mythical heaven. Think about it. We live our lives afraid of this, hoping for that, right? And they usually overlap, right? I don't want this. Instead, I want that. And so whatever promises to give me this, I, I will do whatever it asks of me. And those are our functional hells. We, we know them well, right? Loneliness, despair, disrespect, ignorance, poverty, failure, uh, to be unattractive, to be incompetent, sick, whatever it might be, these functional hells. So, so, so maybe you grew up in a home where one of these was prevalent or someone called you something or you were bullied a certain way and your greatest fear is that that becomes true and you'll do whatever it takes to keep that from happening. Those are your functional hells. You look in a mirror and what you see is a functional hell. You, you, you turn on your Instagram, your TikTok, your Twitter, your Facebook and what you see are functional hells and they fuel your desire for a mythical heaven. A heaven that I can create. If I play the game right, if I do everything the right way, if I just follow the program, what I can find is an Eden in my life, a paradise that I can create. So we want to leave behind hell. We want to embrace a heaven. Think about it. How would you, or do you ever start a sentence with if only? And that question, how you answer it, will likely give away your mythical heaven. If only I were more financially secure. Then, right, if only I had a better marriage, if only I were married, if only my husband would just listen to me, if only I had a more fulfilling job, if only we could have kids, if only my children would listen to me, if only my boss believed in me more, if only, if only, if only. And we think that my heaven lies over the shores of if only. If I can just reach those shores, I'll have peace. I find unrelenting joy. I find the contentment my heart longs for. Idolatry says that if only we had this one piece of the puzzle, this one simple solution, we could reach our heaven. And our promised land can be grasped. Our eating can be realized. And so what we do is we try to create heaven on earth. We try to establish it so long as we can possess it, earn it, experience it. And this promised land, we believe, is always in our grasp. I think I've shared this commercial with you before. It's one of my favorites because of what it illustrates. Years and years ago, I saw a commercial. It was a McDonald's commercial, so you know it's going to be good. And it was a McRib commercial, so you know it's going to be good. And, of course, they're, they're, they're trying to announce uh, to the viewer the McRib is back, right? 
And, and what you have here is a, a, a newly married groom and bride. They're, they're in the airport waiting to go to their honeymoon. And the husband gets a text from all of his buddies. And it's a selfie with, it's a group selfie. They've all got the barbecue sauce coming down their face. And they're all smiling with the caption, the McRib is back. And she looks over and sees what it is. And she realizes he's trying to figure out, which do I want more? To go on my honeymoon with my newly wedded wife? Or to go back with the boys and to have the McRib, right? It's a goofy commercial. But the caption is telling the simple joy of big news. You see what they just did there? What marketing tells us is that whatever it is you are looking for, it can be bought with a price. Oh, you're having a miserable day? Good news. The McRib is back. Having a hard time functioning throughout the day at a dead-end job? Your marriage on the rocks, or in this case, barely starting it's on the rocks? Good news, the simple joy. The big rib is back. See, every idol gives an illusion that love, joy, peace, contentment, and rest can be yours if you're willing to pay the price. And in America, that usually means a literal price. Consumerism says your functional hell can become a heaven if only you get a makeover if you're not attractive. If only you try a new workout plan if you don't like the results in the mirror. If only you find Mr. or Mrs. Wright by downloading this app when you feel alone. If only you try a new investment plan to secure your future. No matter what it takes to get what you need, no matter what compromise you have to take to get there, do it. No sacrifice is too large. After all, false gods, all gods demand sacrifice. And when idolatry is our worship, what will follow is conflict and division. If you don't believe me, look around in the world we live in. It is no accident that, that as Christianity declines in the West... Division and violence and animosity rises at the same time. Where there is idolatry, there is no reconciliation because there is no mediator, because there is no savior, because there is no reconciler. The second root problem, root cause, is pride. I don't want to spend forever on this. But pride is essentially an idolatry of the self. It is to say that I am the solution. Not you, not us, not it, not them. It is refusal to see that the problem lies in me, but I can see clearly that the problem lies in you. That is why if you try to solve a problem with they or you, nothing good is going to come out of that. Can I tell you why? Because they, the root cause, is pride too. And what are they saying? You. James is right. I think James really summarizes it quite well for us in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? Well, that's, that's a good question, Baptist. Not that we would ever fight over anything. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Can I give you sort of an, an ironic application of this text? I, I, grew, I spent some time at a church several years ago where they love to quote James 4, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Right? And I think I've told you all this before. That they will go around and say, see, see the problem is your temptation. The problem is with, 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 with your struggles in your marriage. The problem with, with, with everything is you just got to resist the devil. He'll flee from you. And I remember one time raising my hand and said, there's a sentence before that. It's in the same exact verse. Submit to God. Right? So you see what we were doing is we were taking a passage that was critical of pride, using pride as an excuse for how we read the end of the passage. I can resist the devil. I can make him flee because I'm a man. I'm spiritually mature. And the whole point of the text is say, no, no, you can't. Isn't it until you humbly come before the Savior will there be any resistance? Pride. Pride fuels conflicts because the only interest isn't the good of others. It is the good of the self. See, when Paul talks about marriage, he says, husbands, love your wives as, much as Christ loved the church. What he's not saying there is be a good boy. Remember the anniversaries. What he's saying is you must humbly die. Otherwise, your marriage don't stand a chance. Well, we've got to move on to, to the third one. And that is Unforgiveness. Forgiveness equals freedom. Unforgiveness equals bondage. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, believing the other person will die. Forgiveness isn't easy, but is a necessary discipline for spiritual, and I would add even physical, health. We have allowed in our lives far too many people to live rent-free in our souls simply because we will not forgive and leave vengeance and justice with God. Do you really believe your bitterness will resolve the issue? It will not and never has and it never will. Yet we hold fast to something that happened when we were in high school. We hold fast to, to what someone said in between classes. We hold fast to, to what, what their parents really thinks of me. Out of the well of unforgiveness springs bitterness, envy, anger, wrath, injustice. Again, if you don't believe me, the cultural wars right now have turned into actual wars simply because of this issue right here. We worship other gods. We're driven by our own ego, the self, like we talked about this past Wednesday night. And then we refuse to forgive. And so we turn everyone to an enemy because the only person that matters is me. You see, that's the root cause. You can label it whatever term you want, but you're only dealing with surfacey stuff. And when you deal with surfacey stuff, guess what's going to keep popping up? You're going to keep having the same conversations, the same conflicts, the same complaints, the same everything, because the root will always become fruits. Idolatry, pride, and unforgiveness. So what I want to do in, in conclusion, 
We've gone through these before. None of this is new. I want to ask a series of diagnostic questions. And I want you to reflect in your own life, see where you are in this. The first is, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? I don't want to get sick. I don't want to be alone. I don't want my spouse to die. I don't want to be a funeral of my child. I don't want to lose my job. I'm going to lose my last friend. What are you most afraid of? What do you long for most passionately? What gets you up in the morning? Why do you go to work? Why do you pray? Why do you care? Why do you strive? Why do you try? What do you most, what do you long for the most? Thirdly, where do you run to for comfort? When things go bad and you get stressed, you run to alcohol, to food, pornography, vice, anger, just go to bed and hope that it all goes away? What do you run to for comfort? What do you complain about most? Probably indicates the thing you're most frustrated with, your functional hell, which you perceive to be your mythical heaven. What angers you the most? What makes you furious? What makes you the happiest? What are the best memories of your life? What are the things that you say, if only I could go and do that again, or live there again, or experience that again? How do you explain yourself to other people? Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I blank. I'm married, I have kids, I'm a lawyer. How we identify ourselves likely reveals our identity, or how we see ourselves or want to be seen by others. What has caused you to be angry at God? You lost your job, spouse die. What has caused you to be angry at God? What do you want to have more than anything else? What do you make the biggest sacrifices for? Your time, your energy, your money? your effort, your long hours, your devotion. It's on your mind when you can't sleep. Whose approval are you seeking the most? Your spouse, your boss, your neighbor next door. And finally, what do you treasure the most? What is the one person or the one thing that if it is taken from you, it would ruin everything? Piper likes the diagnostic scenario where he says, if I can give you everything you ever wanted, if you could have just everything, the right place, the right possessions, the right people, whatever it is, all the money in the world, all your old buddies from high school, perfect marriage, great children that stay toddlers and never become teenagers, whatever it might be, whatever scenario is. And then he asks this question, if Jesus wasn't there, would you still think it was heaven? The inverse is equally true. If you had none of those things you ever wanted, you're living in your functional hell, but Jesus is there. Is it actually in heaven? What we need is new hearts. Ezekiel the prophet 
in anticipating the, the dry bones, God pulls them aside and he gives them a simple promise. The hope of the gospel is simply that I, not you, that I as Savior will remove your heart of stone and give you a new heart. And Christ comes and he bleeds on a cross and he is risen again for the purpose that those who would come before him might find grace in the eyes of a Savior, a new heart as a gift from our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.